we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig into Article 4 of the Baptist Faith and Message, the article on salvation. Pray with us. Father, you have given us such a great salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray tonight, Lord, that, that as we study this doctrine, as we look at what your word says, as we look at what um, the Baptist Faith and Message says, we, we pray that we would get a deeper appreciation of everything you've done for us. Father, tonight we are humbled by your love for us. Make that love more than just a head knowledge. May we act on it as the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Salvation is, it's been said, is like a diamond. There are many facets, many faces to the diamond, and uh, each one has its own beauty. If you look at it from different angles, you can see the light reflecting in different ways. Um, As we look at each individual facet of the diamond, we see, as we look at this diamond and we look at the different facets of it, it's easy to get lost in the details and miss the big picture of its beauty, the connections that, that, that make everything quite so uh, wonderful to look at as a whole. If we hold the diamond away, we're not looking under the microscope. We're not, we're not looking at the small details of it. We're looking at it from a distance We can see how some of the sides connect. We can see the general shape. We can see all of the way that the light bounces off of it. And it gives us a deeper appreciation of its beauty. But we miss those small details that help us appreciate just how complex and wonderful this diamond is. We have to do both. We have to look at the diamond in its particulars and in its generalities. Look at it both closely and distantly if we're going to appreciate its glory in full. And the Baptist faith and message tries to strike this balance with the doctrine of salvation. It starts with a paragraph that talks about salvation as a whole, the generalities of it. And then it talks about some of the particular facets of it that that are worth looking at. So let's look generally and then we'll look specifically. This is what the Baptist faith and message starts as. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So we've got this general description, and the first thing that it tells us is this broad effect of salvation, that it involves the redemption of the whole man. This is something that um, wasn't in the original Baptist faith and message in 1925. It was something that was added in in 1963. And part of it reflects this general concern uh, that was going on in that period of the entire being. We as humans are not just one dimension. We don't just have a spiritual or just a physical or just a mental or an emotional side by itself. We're we're made up of this complex. We are an emotional being. We are a mental being. We are a spiritual being. We are a physical being. There's all these different aspects of us that, that all come together in man. And one of the recognitions is that salvation has implications for the entire man, not just for one or two parts, not just for certain aspects of life, but for all of life in general. 
And so they, they added this language in 1963 that it is it involves the redemption of the whole man because it, it, it plays off of every aspect. It impacts every aspect of who we are. It's not just a spiritual thing that has no bearing on how we live day to day. No, it has full implications on how we live day to day. Jesus is alluding to this when he talks about, uh, um, he, he says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, it, that all of life gets impacted. When you are the branch that is abiding in the vine, well, you have life. You don't have life apart from the vine, do you? That's what he means when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that also has implications not only in the life you have, but how you live that life, right? Branches, don't, branches on an apple tree don't grow grapes. They don't have that in them. The only thing they can grow is apples because that's the fruit of the tree onto which the branch is attached. That's the kind of tree it is. And likewise, we as Christians, we cannot help but bear the fruit of the Spirit when we are in the vine, in Christ. And so salvation is going to impact us because that's how we get in Christ in the first place. Not, there's not an aspect of our lives that should not fall under the rule of God through salvation. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, it's not just a spiritual thing that has no bearing on the physical. How I dress, what things I do with my body, they matter to God because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. What we do with ourselves matters to God. And salvation ought to impact us in such a way, in fact, it will impact us if we are genuinely saved, in such a way that we will become more and more and more Christ-like in the way that we handle our body. And not just our body. That works for the mind, that works for the emotions, that works for everything. The attitudes that we have. Everything falls under the sovereignty of God. He wrote to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Oh, well, about a month ago now. Seem, doesn't seem like that far away. This idea that God in salvation is working in us both to will and to work. Not only to do the things we're supposed to do, but to want to do them, to desire to do them. God is not just impacting one or two bits of us. He's not just impacting what the hands do independent of how the mouth speaks. He's not just impacting what the mouth says independent of how the heart feels. He's not just impacting how the heart feels independent of what the eyes look at. You, you see, we, we are whole creatures. We're, we are whole individuals. And salvation ought to impact every bit of it, and it will. If the salvation is genuine, writing on this article... Uh, Dr. R. Albert Muller wrote this. 
The Lordship of Jesus Christ places the believer under a new and conscious sovereignty. And the believer is to be deployed for kingdom purposes, to live by kingdom principles, and to live only for the glory of the king. It impacts everything we do. Not only does salvation redeem the whole man, it is available to all men. When John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching in John chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the select few. No, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus affirms this as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 5, 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Did he say whoever happens to be on the list? No. He says whoever believes, whoever hears and believes. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Paul, in Romans chapter 10, man, he just, he just cuts right to the chase when he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we can argue about who's going to call on the name of the Lord. We can talk about the doctrine of election, and we're going to talk a little bit about that next week uh, as we look at God's purpose for grace. That's the next article in this document. But suffice it to say right now, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? These men ask the apostles in the book of Acts, and what do they say? Believe on the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you will be saved. It's a general salvation. General in the sense of available. General. Now, we recognize, though, that it's not general in its application. In other words, just because you're alive and breathing doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Just because you have a sincere religious belief doesn't mean you're going to be saved. This is the one change that happened between 1963 and 2000 that is the most critical. This one sentence was added. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Because there's been a couple of tendencies. One of the tendencies is that we live in a culture now that rejects claims of exclusivity. If you claim that one thing is right and something else is wrong, you are a bigot and you are not to be tolerated. Funny how they call themselves tolerant and they don't tolerate certain things. But the fact of the matter is we live in a culture that wants to say it's your truth. Robert, it's your truth. Whatever's true for you, the Bible is clear. We cannot be saved apart from Christ. There's been another tendency. Well, you know, they may not know all the particular details, but they're earnestly seeking to, to they have a, a genuine religious faith. They really believe what they believe. And while I may not agree with it, who am I to say that they're wrong? It's a rejection of truth. Because what it says is God's word, well, it's just one way. Now, let's ask this. If we really believe that the Bible is the word of God, and God has said this is the way to be saved. Who do we think we are by saying, well, you don't really have to do that as long as you're genuine in your belief, as long as you truly believe it. Who are we to tell God that he's mistaken on it? I mean, he is God. If this is his word, and I believe that it is, I believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And if that is the case, who am I to say, well, you know, the Bible is not complete. You don't have to follow this. You can follow whatever you come up with. You see, 
some denominations are actively seeking to delete the gospel. Some have a long time ago. In fact, one of the problems in Baptist history is this universalism. You get, you get Baptists that, that, that firmly believe that whosoever will, but they end up diluting the gospel into saying whosoever will even try to come any particular way they choose. The universalist Unitarians come, came out of the Baptist church as well as some other denomination, but largely Baptist because they just couldn't bear to think that God would be so cruel as to exclude people from heaven. But the fact of the matter is God doesn't exclude anybody from heaven. Our sins exclude us from heaven. It's our sins that take us away from God. And by putting this sentence in there, what we've basically said as Baptists is, hey, there's no other way. There can be no other way. It's not some universalism that says everybody's going to be saved. It's not some uh, uh, wishy-washy idea of truth that whatever you think is true is true. No, truth is solid. It, it's objective. It's absolute in this case. Now, there, there are certain things that are matters of opinion. I, I have my preferences. You have yours. This isn't a matter of preferences. This is a matter of truth. And fuzzy logic doesn't work when it comes to king, kings and lord lords. Baptists affirm the belief that salvation is only possible through faith in Jesus. Paul says to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, That is, and this is not your own doing, that is not of yourself, some versions put it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And by the way, why? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. In other words... It's a general call applied to those who specifically respond. And it's a salvation that affects everything we do. Now, we look generally. Let's look specifically. There's four uh, paragraphs. There's actually five paragraphs, but two of them are under one heading. Um, so there's four facets that, that we focus on in the Baptist faith and message. One is regeneration. It starts like this. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin and toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior. So when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about what many call being born again. And we get that language from John chapter 3. Uh, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, Rabbi, I know you're telling truth. And, and, and he, he's giving all this praise and applause to Jesus. I think some of it's probably genuine. Some of it's he's probably embellishing what he thinks, or at least he's, he's going through all the cordial things that you do when you have a distinguished teacher before you, right? And then Jesus immediately responds with this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration is not just reformation. It's not taking what's there and making it better. We're not simply in need of repair. To put what Jesus said another way, you were born wrong the first time. You need to go back and be born a second time. Born better. We are in need of a complete transformation that brings an entirely new kind of life 
to us. You see uh, uh, Paul, again, straight to the point. He puts it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. <laughs> there's, no, there's no coddling your feelings when it comes to Paul. <laughs> he tells you straight like it is. You were dead. You weren't just on life support. You were, com- you were a goner. You were dry bones in the middle of a valley with no possibility of life in them before God began to call those bones together, began to call the, the tissues and the sinews off to, to join those bones together, the cartilage and, and, and the skin and the organs to form a human body and then, and then to breathe his spirit into your lungs so that you can have life. You see, you were the dry bones in the valley. You don't get new life when there's no life to start with. Uh, unless God's involved. Verse 4, just a couple verses later. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So this is the work of regeneration. God has taken someone who is dead in sin and breathed his spirit into them to make them live. That's what we call regeneration. E.Y. Mullins talks about the link between regeneration and faith. He says, there can be no interval between gospel faith and gospel repentance. Each is bound up in the other. When one is completed, the other is completed. He goes on to say, the correct view is that regeneration and repentance and faith are simultaneous events in the soul's life. No impenitent or unbelieving soul can be a regenerate soul just as no penitent believer can be unregenerate. In other words, it's all or it's nothing. It's not, I have faith, but I haven't repented of my sins. That's not biblical faith. That's not genuine faith. So we have regeneration, this new birth. We also have justification. Justification, Baptist faith, the message here, is God's gracious and full acquittal upon the principles of his righteousness of all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. Justification brings the the believer into a relationship of peace and favor with God. Just as there's a relational aspect, that's the the regeneration, which, by the way, uh, if if you are born into a family, there there are relationships that happen, right? You know, you have a father and a mother, and then you're born into that family. You have brothers and sisters. Family, uh, just being born into the family is enough to create that relationship. Well, in the same way, uh, as there is a relational aspect to salvation, there's also a legal aspect. You see, we sinned against God, and our sin requires God's judgment. Otherwise, God isn't just. But in the process of salvation, God justifies us. He he brings us on acquittal. He doesn't say you're not guilty because we are guilty, but he removes he removes the the consequence, the eternal consequence of that guilt. He absolves us from our errors and declares us to be forgiven, rather than punishing us for our crime. Well, the problem there, though, you might you might say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that God is not a righteous judge? I mean, how many of you, us, um, if if we go to a court of law? want the judge to say, you are guilty as the day is long, but I'm not going to punish you. That's not a righteous judge. Now, if you're the defendant, that's going to 
But if you're not the defendant, everyone else in the courtroom knows that's not justice. Right? Right? We know that. We want a judge to punish the wrongdoer. That's part of the whole reason for the court. Why do the trial if you're not going to punish the guilty one? That's not justice. So does that mean God isn't just? No. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal upon principles of his righteousness. Now, how does God both be just in his judgments and justify sinners? How does that work? Well, actually, Scripture shows us. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Paul quotes this psalm in Romans chapter 4. A little bit later in that same chapter, he goes on to say, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. He's talking about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, okay? He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, not for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. One chapter earlier in this book to the Romans, Paul talks about our sinfulness and God's response. For all have sinned. You, you've heard the verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a payment for guilt by his blood to be received by faith. Listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over, former, wait, passed over. That sounds familiar. Where do we know that phrase from? Come on, this one's easy. Passover, right? When the blood on the door, the angel passes over the house and does not bring death. In the same way, when the blood of Christ is on us, figuratively speaking, we don't cover ourselves in blood, but... But when the blood of Christ is figuratively on us, God's judgment passes over us. Now, does that mean there's no consequences? No. No, we still face consequences. We're still sinners. And hard as it is, we get what we deserve. You sin, you're, you're going to face consequences for it. But it was, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God transfers the punishment that belongs to us onto his son Jesus and transfers the righteousness that belongs to Jesus onto us. I'll tell you what, talk about a good trade deal. Man, that's a, that's a deal right there. We, he, he definitely gets the short end of that transaction. We get, we get the much better deal. He is both just, punishing our sins, punishing them on the cross, and justifier, redeeming us from our sin. And as a result, we're at peace with God, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're redeemed. We're, we're, uh, the salvation, it produces in us a regeneration and provides us with justification. Then there's the sanctification. Sanctification, Baptist faith, the message here. 
is the experience, beginning in regeneration, by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. Our goal is to grow in Christ's likeness. And sanctification is the way that we grow to be more like Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear the construction language? The growth words. Equip, building up, attain, mature manhood, and womanhood, by the way. Stature of the fullness of Christ. No longer be children. Grow up in every way. Build itself up in love. All of these point us to sanctification. God works within us to produce the holiness and the maturity in the faith that he desires. And it happens because of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit. And he just mentioned the works of the flesh. Rather, turn away from that and look at this juicy, succulent fruit of the Spirit. I am the vine, you are the branches, this is your fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the work of God in you. This sanctification is you becoming more and more and more like Him. Are you becoming more like Him, God? Are you closer to looking like him today than, than you were before? Will you be closer tomorrow than you are today? Because you can't really change what you looked like 10 minutes ago. You can't really change what you looked like in the past. You can change what you look like tomorrow, though. Growing in faith. Sanctification. In fact, not only is sanctification the work of God, it's the hallmark that God is working within the life of a believer. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus prays especially for the believers to be sanctified. John 17, this high priestly prayer of Christ, on the night where he is to be captured and tried and tomorrow get, gets crucified on the cross, Jesus prays before, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. So we have regeneration. We have justification. We have sanctification. Where does all this end up? Where are we heading toward? What's the purpose of all? What's the end goal? Glorification. Glorification. This is everything has a goal or an end to it. Glorification is the end of salvation. Now, I don't mean the end as in, well, that's it. That's where it stops. I mean, that's where we're headed. And one day we will be glorified. 
The Baptist faith and message puts it this way. Glorification is the culmination of salvation and is the final blessed and abiding state of the redeemed. If only there was a passage that assured us that we will be glorified. Oh, wait, there is. <laughs> Don't you love it when that happens? Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. We can argue about what that word means. Don't worry about that right now. What did he do? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined. Again, we can argue, but who cares? Let's keep going. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. While we can argue about what some of the terms exactly mean and the nitpicky details of it, did you notice that every single one of those words was past tense? All statement of fact. Not might justify. Those he called, he might end up justifying at some point. He'll probably justify. I'm pretty sure he's going to justify, but I'm not, I'm not 100% certain. No. Each one of these is, is what's called the aorist active indicative. Every single one. God is doing the work, and it's already so sure in Paul's mind that he states it as though it's already happened. He foreknew, so he predestined. He predestined, so he called. He called, so he justified. He justified, so he glorified. It is take it to the bank. In fact, I trust this a lot more than I trust my bank. Every single verb points us to certainty in what God is going to do. If you need more proof, read Revelation. It's in there too. All of these things are not dependent on our effort, but on God's. And that's really the whole, that's really the whole point on salvation, isn't it? Because everything in this, in this thing that's called Christianity, everything depends on God. That's why we don't put confidence in the flesh. I was considering earlier in the week, as I was thinking through the sermon for this morning, I was considering the, the, the main point of the sermon um, being a little bit different sentence. The original sentence said, I could put confidence in me, but I don't because I put confidence in Christ. That was originally what I was going to do. Uh, when I started thinking of the sports analogies, that kind of shifted on into to what it ended up being. I could be a winner, but I choose to be a loser for Christ. Um, but but it's that basic idea that we cannot put confidence in ourselves. The only sure place of our confidence is in Christ. And the doctrine of salvation teaches us so much strong, so strongly that everything else that follows in this statement of faith, everything else that follows in life after salvation, all points back to that moment, all derives its meaning and its purpose and its destination from that one moment where God reached down into history and grabbed a hold of our hearts and made us his sons and daughters. It all goes back to that. The only reason this isn't the first article is because we got to figure out how do we know that we need to be saved first. We start with scriptures because that's how we know God. Then we go to God because that's the one worth knowing. Then we look at us because we're not like God at all. And that brings us to the need of salvation. And now everything else is going to flow out from that. Everything else is going to explore that and its implications. 
Father, thank you for so great a salvation, so wonderful a salvation that that we could not possibly accomplish on our own. Father, help us to live like it. Thank you for regenerating us, for, for birthing us in your spirit. Thank you for justifying us, for removing not only the guilt of sin, but even the stains of sin from our hearts. Thank you for sanctifying us. Continue that good work until the day that we not only look forward to, but experience your glorification. Father, help us to never take for granted the great work you've done in saving us from sin. Help us live like it, talk like it, walk like it, act like it, be like it. In Jesus' name, amen.